You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the second series of Sweden in Focus, the locals' weekly review of what's been happening in the news in Sweden. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and today you won't be surprised to learn we're going to concentrate fully on the war in Ukraine and how it's affecting life in Sweden. I'll be joined a little bit later by the locals' Malmö-based reporter Becky Waterton, who will talk about the results of a listener poll in which we asked if you think Sweden should join NATO. I'll also be joined by James Savage, the locals' CEO and publisher, who will tell us about what defence guarantees, if any, Sweden can expect from the wider world in the event of a war here. And I should add that it remains a very unlikely event, according to Swedish analysts. However, these are, of course, unusual and worrying times. And we'll also hear from the local Sweden's acting editor, Richard Orange, on what would be expected of people living in Sweden if a major crisis were to hit. This show is made possible by members of the local. It takes time and resources to produce independent journalism, and we'd like to thank everybody who supports us through membership. If you're not yet a member, I'd urge you to check out our excellent introductory offer for Sweden in Focus listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. Now, before we get to the discussion about NATO and Sweden's defence policy, we're going to listen to a chat I had last week with Karina Shirokish about the war in Ukraine and what people in Sweden can do to help. Aside from lecturing in international relations at Stockholm University, Karina is also spokesperson for Nordic Ukraine Forum, an organisation that has organised demonstrations and is coordinating relief efforts for Ukrainians still in the country and those on the move, increasing numbers of whom are now making their way to Sweden. But first, I asked Karina to tell us about where she's from in Ukraine and how she ended up in Sweden. Originally, I'm from Shirokino. I was born in Shirokino. This is a place or this is a village where uh, fights have started in um, 2014. Then after I finished school, I moved to Kiev to study in Kiev and I was living in an area close to a TV station um, and a TV tower that recently, yesterday actually was bombed uh, by Russia killing five civilians uh, who worked in the TV station, uh, your colleagues, journalists. Um, after finishing my uh, university studies, bachelor-level studies in Ukraine, I moved here to Sweden to obtain my second master's degree. Um, and I've been living here on and off since 
Swansetown. And through Nordic Ukraine Forum, you're in contact with a lot of other Ukrainians in Sweden. What kind of conversations have you been having with people about the Russian invasion that's happening in your country while you're here in Sweden? How has the reaction been from them? Of course, on a regular basis during the protests that we arrange, people are crying when they hear the national anthem. They're crying when they're talking about their families. They're crying. But I can see that at the same time, people are courageous, they're strong, and they, they're ready to fight. It's, it's, not, it's not tears of despair. It's, it's tears of um, rage at times, but also tears of solidarity uh, with Ukraine. It's not despair at all. Uh, Ukraine is not a country, or Ukraine is, Ukrainians are not the people that will be easily put down. As a nation, as a country, they, they've been living through similar situations throughout the history. So Ukrainians uh, learn how to survive and they will prevail this time too. And we know most people are watching the news with horror and you mentioned that uh, a lot of non-Ukrainians are attending the, the demonstrations and people are eager to support Ukraine and Ukrainians. What do you think are the most important things that people in Sweden can do to help out at a practical level? We have seen that a large number of local residents of Stockholm, they're reaching out to us and they're asking how can we help. Um, there are different ways one can help Ukraine right now. One can donate uh, medicine, um, equipment for the territorial defense units that are uh, now fighting shoulder to shoulder with soldiers trying to defend um, the local residences or local territories. Um, and these units are formed from civilians, so they have no military background. They had some basic training, and everybody is allowed to have, again, currently to protect himself or herself. So many people are doing that right now. So um, what is happening in Stockholm now, uh, it's it's collection of these donations. It's, it's possible to buy this military equipment, such as um, bulletproof vests, um, glasses, that are needed for these kind of conditions. And I'm, I'm missing words because I never was interested in this stuff, but uh, I know that it's very much needed right now. And uh, if, you, if you want to see the full list, which is um, constantly being updated, um, you can go to Nordic Ukraine Forum webpage and we, we post there the latest updates. You can see what are the most urgent needs, uh, in terms of medicine or maybe equipment, maybe some clothes. Yes, it, it's updated all the time, so keep an eye on our webpage. This podcast is free to listen to, but if you like what you hear and are not yet a member of the local, please consider joining. By subscribing, you get the latest news from Sweden that impacts you, essential practical information and advice on life in Sweden, and unrestricted access to all editions of The Local. Please check out our membership offer at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer to find out more. Just a quick note to say that the discussion you're about to hear about Sweden's defensive capabilities was recorded on Thursday morning and later that day the Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson announced a plan to boost Sweden's defence spending to 2% of GDP. She said that this would require spending around 108 billion kroner every year compared to a defence budget for 2021 of roughly 66 billion kroner. Okay, back to the show. 
I'm joined now by the locals James Savage, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. And I don't think you've been on the podcast before, Becky. What can you tell listeners about yourself? Yeah, so I'm um, I'm based in Malmö. I have, actually have a background in languages. I studied Scandinavian studies at university. But um, moving to moving to Sweden and kind of going through everything that the immigrants go through when they're moving to a different country, I learned a lot about how the system works here and kind of realised that I had a bit of a a bit of information I could give to people and a way I could help. So that's kind of how I ended up working in journalism and working for the local. So I could share some of that knowledge and also help people that had gone through the same things that I've gone through moving to a different country. Great, and we'll be hearing from you again uh, very soon. And Richard, you have been on the podcast before, but your role at the local has changed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, I've been working in various roles for the local for nearly 10 years, which is a bit, a bit scary to think <laughs> about. But um, but um, so I've edited the Denmark site and the Norway site, and I've also been Malmo correspondent for a bit. But um, uh, for, And I also... Uh, my, my main job since I've been here has been working for the UK newspapers, but the longer I'm here the more native you become and the harder it is to do another story about, oh, you know, the far right arising in Sweden. And and the more you kind of want to do something that's more in-depth and more angled at people like like me who've been who've been living here for a while. And so I'll be taking over and, and Emma's gone on maternity leave and she'll be back in end of August. So I'm really looking forward to, to sort of managing the site over, over over the spring and summer, especially because it's an election year. It should be really exciting. Yeah, plus plus there's the war in Ukraine. You've obviously been very, very busy in your first couple of weeks. And you've been speaking to Ukrainians in Sweden who are suddenly finding themselves in situations they could scarcely have imagined before the 24th of February. Uh, we're going to listen very briefly now to a phone call you had with a construction worker, Anton Zelaznov, who left his job in Yevle and was already in Warsaw on his way to fight for his country when you caught up with him on the phone. You fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You protect your country. It is like you this is like for me this is like it's not question. And you also spoke to Maria Opanasenko, a former employee of the local, when she was about to board a flight to Poland to meet her parents as they waited in line to cross the border. And she talked about how they had just got out of Kharkiv in the nick of time. Like it's terrible, you know. It's it's just terrible. When when my mom told me first that they heard shootings and bombings and train just started to move, and it was literally last moment, and they are they are so like lucky that they managed to leave uh, the city. Uh, could I just ask you, Richard, have you heard any more from either of them since those interviews? Yes, I mean, I've been, I've been in touch with Anton quite a bit, actually. He's joined the military, but he can't tell, tell us where he is for, for security reasons. And he seems to be OK. I, he's joined up and he's been posted somewhere and he wouldn't give me m- much more details than that. Did he say when he was going to be able to get in touch again? Yeah, yeah. He said he would get back in touch after the war, which which is remarkable, really. And, and Maria was also talking about how she she said she didn't know anyone in any Russians in Sweden who are um, pro Putin. You know, all of all of her Russian friends are, are as appalled, maybe not quite as appalled as she is by what's been going on, and are, yeah, horrified by what's happened. We're going to switch focus a little bit now to um, Sweden's status as a non-NATO country located just a couple of um, hours flight time away from the war in Ukraine. And we ran a poll this week asking listeners if you think Sweden should join NATO. Can you tell us how it went, Becky? 
Yeah, so we actually did two separate polls. We did one for the podcast, which is the one that had by far the most um, the most respondents. I think that had over 1,300. And that uh, 54% of people in that poll said, no, Sweden shouldn't join NATO. And then 46% said that we should. Um, but that poll had no option for kind of don't know or other or can you explain your answers? And then separately before this, we'd done um, we'd done a survey, which is up on the website, um, kind of about Sweden's security situation. But one of the questions in that survey was also, do you think Sweden should join NATO? And in that poll, we had 50.5% said yes and 315 said no. And then there was 168 that said don't know and then other, which was people kind of saying yes, but not right now because it might provoke Russia and that kind of thing. Are these results that you would have expected? Um, I mean, especially the one that we did in the survey, it was very similar to, I think, Aftonbladet recently did a poll as well of Swedes on, on what they think about NATO. And I think their poll was 51% in favour and 27% against and ours was 50 and 31, so very similar. It is interesting that what we're, what we're seeing is, is just divided opinion um, um, among people, but certainly a shift, it feels, towards um, a more pro-NATO position compared yeah. to before. And it feels like a lot of people are still uncertain. Like, if we look at both both the poll we did in the survey and the Aftonbladet poll, I think there was 16.4% in our survey said they don't know, and then 22% in Aftonbladet said they don't know. So it could just be that lots of people that answered no in our podcast survey did so because they, they don't really know whether we should join or not. And it seems safer to not be in if you're not sure what the, what the situation is than to go in. In that survey, Becky, you've been asking readers of the local to explain their thinking about Sweden and NATO. Can you tell us a little bit about what people are saying? How are they reasoning? Yeah, I mean, we were, it was very split. A lot of people were saying it wasn't the right time. And then obviously people saying either that we should join because of Russia to kind of deter Russia or we should not join because of Russia because it might provoke them. So a lot of people were kind of, yeah, not sure whether it was a good idea because they didn't want retaliation, but then they said, oh, but if Russia are going to attack us anyway, then we might as well get, we might as well join so we have more defence. Interesting. And James, this is a question that you've covered a lot in your time at the local and you've seen this shift in opinion over the years and a lot has been happening in the last couple of weeks, an awful lot. Can you give us a, a roundup of the sort of the Swedish NATO debate at the moment? Yeah, it's... Um, I think the most interesting thing here is to see how opinion has shifted, you know, from before um, Russia went into Ukraine. You know, we, Russia was already, you know, has for many, many years been, um, been, been threatening its neighbours. It's invaded its neighbours. It invaded Ukraine already in 2014. It's invaded Georgia. It's invaded, um, you know, Transnistria in, in Moldova. So... Um, there's been a sort of a gradual increase in support for NATO, but before the before the actual invasion, the most recent invasion of Ukraine, um, there was about there were about 35% of people in Sweden who thought that Sweden should join NATO, um, but that's um, increased in some polls as we were talking now to, to about half the population now that thinks that Sweden should go into NATO. That's a very very rapid change, and it's you know easy to explain. It's easy to see why that might have happened. Um, we've seen similar and perhaps even more dramatic changes, in fact, in Finland with. Um, both in the political arena and in um, and in public opinion, with 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 a significant number of people wanting to uh, to join NATO, um, a significant increase in support for that. Um, but then in Sweden, opinion has has gone in that direction. But in terms of um, how that's been reflected in the political debate, that debate moves more slowly because parties have their kind of very well-established positions that, 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 are, that, are ang that are deeply anchored in party culture. Um, and so it's been interesting to see how the, particularly the Social Democrats have moved in this. And Magdalena Andersson, 
had said a few days ago that joining NATO now would destabilize this part of Europe even further. Um, you know, and this 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 links into a, to a whole uh, tradition um, in uh, of Swedish of what used to be Swedish neutrality, and now is now um, a Swedish sta- Swedish non-aligned status, Swedish freedom from alliances, as it would be the literal translation from the Swedish alliansfrihet, and. Um, and, and this this is all about you know not wanting to um, provoke conflict in the area by taking rash steps and particularly um, not to join NATO, which everyone um, is by this stage aware is, is, is something that, that for Putin um, is seen as as, as, as a, a provocation. You mentioned you mentioned Finland uh, um, and you know the the shift has been quite similar there in public opinion. Are Finland and Sweden coordinating? Finland and Sweden are coordinating and we're seeing them um, aligning um, a little bit uh, more now. And, and so uh, what Magdalene Andersson has said um, most recently, um, she's she's rowed back a little bit from what she said, or she's nuanced what she said before in a way that chimes um, chimes with what Finnish uh, leadership is saying, which um, is that she wouldn't rule out NATO membership um, in the longer term. But she's very keen that Swedish policy is uh, predictable. Now, there are many on the other side of, um, of Swedish politics who emphasise that Sweden must join NATO at some point um, to, to a greater extent. But even there, there are nuances about exactly when Sweden should join. There's not, 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 not everybody is, is, is suggesting that Sweden should join now. If you look at um, uh, the moderate leader, the, the main opposition leader, Ulf Christensen, he did an interview uh, recently where he was, he, he was um, relatively um, vague about the timings um, of any um, NATO application. So, yeah, if, even if Sweden does decide to join NATO, it's going to take quite some time. So if we focus a little bit on the situation as it stands, Sweden isn't in NATO, but it is, of course, in the EU, which has its own defence clause enshrined in the Lisbon Treaty. But this has never really been tested, and it begs the question, would the EU defend Sweden if it came to the crunch? You've been looking into this. I have been looking into this, and it's and it's interesting. I mean, you know, if, if you look at the clause that, um, as it's written in the Lisbon Treaty, um, it says that um, member states will come to each other's aid with all possible means if one of their states is is, is subjected to an armed attack. Now. On, on the face of it, this is a very strong and binding clause. Um, but I, I, I was talking to um, an expert about this, um, uh, Björn Fergestein from the um, uh, Utrechtspolitis Institute, a big uh, foreign policy think tank in Sweden. And he says, yeah, well, in a legal sense, this might be... Um, this, this might be binding. It's you know, it's, it's and, and it's quite it's quite a strong clause, and it could actually cover perhaps even more areas than than, than sim- simply armed conflict. Could 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 be um, you know cyber attacks and, and 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 that kind of thing. But the key difference here is that while NATO has a very well organised um, defence structure, a very big and um, and 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 um, powerful defence structure with the shape headquarters in Brussels and so NATO headquarters in Brussels. The EU doesn't really have that, so it has um, it has principles, it has uh, it has clauses like this, and you know they might well be legally binding. But what do they actually mean in practice? NATO has troops in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which are all NATO countries, um, which means that if the if the Russians were ever to attack those countries, it would automatically um, trigger um, a reaction from from NATO. But there are no foreign troops stationed in Sweden 
as of now, which makes this clause much more um, ambiguous in practical terms, even if it's very clear in in, in theoretical terms. Right, interesting. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about Sweden's relationship with NATO and how you think NATO would react if if Sweden uh, were ever to come under attack? Well, it's interesting because NATO and Sweden... I mean, NATO. Sweden is as close to being a member of NATO as it's possible to be without actually being a member of NATO. Um, Sweden trains with NATO. Sweden has something called a, in, in English, called a memor- memorandum of understanding. But the Swedish unofficial translation um, is a host country agreement, which I think explains this a lot more. It means that Sweden can host NATO troops on its territory by mutual agreement in from case to case, but nonetheless can host NATO troops on its territory in um, during operations as well as during exercises. So this means that, um, you know, in theory, NATO could end up using Sweden as a base if there were to be um, a, a, a war in the, in, in the Baltic Sea region, for example. So Sweden is very closely tied in with NATO. Sweden exercises with NATO all the time. Um, but the crucial thing is that Sweden is not, as, as it's not a member of NATO, it's not covered by this Article 5 uh, clause, which is the mutual defence clause, which says that if one country is attacked, it is an attack on all countries and we will, um, we will, we will defend the, the country that's being attacked together. And do you know if this differs in any um, major way from Ukraine's relationship with NATO? The Swedish, the Swedish relationship with NATO is is deeper and 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 stronger than than, than the relationship between um, between Ukraine and NATO. But the similarity is that these mutual defence agreements are not uh, are not present in either case, and that's obviously the big the big question mark over Sweden's defence. But I think what's important to say here as well, though, is that. On top of Sweden's relationship with NATO, Sweden has strong bilateral military ties with NATO countries, including the US um, and the UK. Also has very strong bilateral security um, ties with Finland. Um, and this is something that if you if you put them all together, they they, they form what's known as the, the Hultqvist Doctrine, named after the, the Swedish defence minister. This overlapping military um, cooperation agreements um, uh, and, and alliances in, in effect, particularly with Finland, um, that he says basically contribute to mean that Sweden Sweden is, is well defended in the in, in the event that, that there that there were, were to be a conflict. If you've been enjoying the show and are not yet a member, please consider supporting the locals independent journalism by heading over to thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer, where a subscription costs just 10 kroner for the first month. We're going to uh, go back uh, a few decades now to the Cold War period when Sweden was on a constant war footing for several decades. And Richard, you've been spending a lot of time recently looking at how prepared Sweden was. And one of the people you spoke to was Frey Valander, an analyst at the Swedish Defence Research Agency. Let's just listen to some of what he had to say. The 50s and 60s is really, you'd say, the, the heydays of the... the the total defense doctrine. That's when we had all these protected shelters, all these big, massive uh, underground uh, shelters as well. And um, all of society was more or less on a war footing. It was a, it was a given. Uh, when you went to school, it was a plan for kids, what they were supposed to do. When you, you had companies that were so-called K companies, uh, which meant, or in English you would call them W companies. So they were companies that had been identified as being important to the war effort. Mm-hmm. They could be 
producing sugar, like food, foodstuffs or so. It could be electricity, it could be telephones or whatnot. But these companies had been granted special status, so to say, but they were important to the war effort and people and every and all of these companies. You'd have people who were uh, regular employees, but who also had like weapons in their in their offices because their job in case of war was to defend the office. <laughs> because so, if you're a sugar factory, you had people literally having having guns in their factory just so that if the Russians came, you're supposed to defend the factory. So, Richard, in your interview with Frey Volander, he talked about Sweden's hedgehog strategy. What exactly was that? Well, it's based around the idea that if the if the Soviet army wanted to take to invade Sweden, there was just, just no way the army would be able to to stop them. You know, the, 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 the strength of the forces was so asymmetrical that Sweden just had no 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 chance of, of actually repelling them. But so the, the the strategy was to make it as painful and difficult as possible. So so like a hedgehog, it's it would be small but spiky and difficult to digest and painful to attack. And that that strategy was was pursued both militarily but also through civil defence, which is preparing the population to resist to the greatest extent possible. And it, interestingly, Ukraine relatively recently adopted that same total defence strategy, it's called. And um, I think Swedish armed forces have been out there sort of um, advising them on, ha- had actually advised them on how to do it. No, that's really interesting how far along they've, they've come with that, because obviously the Ukrainians are putting up incredible resistance. So what's the, what's the state of the hedgehog now? Is the strategy still in place? Uh, has the hedgehog gone away or is it making a return? I would argue that, that right now that, that the hedgehog strategy is pretty much nowhere to be seen. And Sweden has done a lot to build up its defence since the invasion of Crimea in 2014, but but um, it's been mainly focused on the armed forces themselves. And that, so, so the, the population hasn't been prepared to take a role in the same way as it as it did at the height of the of the Cold War when everyone you know, had had military service. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do in the event of an invasion. Even school children, school children were told, if 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 we're invaded, you you're supposed to resist. You're supposed to engage in civil disobedience. It was the entire society was on a war footing, and and I. I mean, right now, that, that, that's nowhere to be seen. I, I think it's only just people are only just starting to realise that it's part of your duty as a, as a Swedish citizen to defend the country. It's not even just Swedish citizens, though. Like, it applies to all residents of Sweden. So even if you're not a citizen, you have, like, you're meant to be taking up arms or supporting in some other way. That's really interesting. Do you think, um, do you think like, speaking to our readers, would they be, um, how, how would they feel about um, being part of the Swedish territorial defence? Well, this was part of our survey. We actually asked, um, so we used the same questions that um, the Swedish Defence Research Institute used about, so there are three different questions. Would you be willing to fight? And then what kind of role would you be willing to fight in? So it was a combat role which risks your life, a non-combat role which wis- risks your life, or a non-combat role, which does not risk your life. And 75% of people who answered our survey said they'd be willing to fight for Sweden. And of that 75%, half said they'd be willing to risk their life. And did, did, they, did they explain their reasoning? Um, yeah, there was a lot of different answers. I mean, some peop- there was one answer which we actually included in our article, which was a, a woman from Crimea, who I think wrote something like, if Sweden was attacked, I would defend it as my own country. I can't defend Ukraine, but I would... Yeah, she was basically saying I'd take up arms to defend Sweden, which I thought was quite moving. 
And there was there was also a Mexican woman who said that you know this is the country that's given me a home, and and it's my duty to defend it. I think I think it's possibly people have been quite inspired by the the example set by people in Ukraine who've put up such a such a staunch resistance to the Russian invasion. But then, of course, on the other hand, you have people saying, "No, I'd be on the first flight out of here." So. And Richard, you've been um, covering this quite extensively uh, on the local. Um, you you had an article this week about the Home Guard, for example. Uh, what's how prepared is Sweden today? I think it's rapidly getting more prepared, uh, but I think I think um, it's still quite early days in the process, and I think Sweden has has moved quite slowly. I don't know what what you would think about that, James. I think you've been looking at this quite a lot. I mean, I, I, I feel that I feel that they're stepping up the preparations, uh, but but it hasn't yet reached the public. People haven't yet been told what to do in the event of an invasion beyond what was in this brochure, which they sent out in 2018, which at the time seemed extraordinary. It was it was it was a sort of reprinting of the old Cold War. Um, Cold War brochure, which says, you know, this is what you do in the event of an invasion. And it says, you know, the, you should have these these items stored at home. You should have, um, you should never, you should, we will never surrender. I mean, one of, the, one of the sentences which is really resonant to Swedes is this sentence saying that everyone is obliged to contribute, everyone is needed, and resistance is required, and we will never give up. And if the information comes out to the effect that resistance is to cease, that it's false. So even if the government says, time's up, guys, you know, we have to work with the invaders, you should ignore them and carry on fighting. Uh, and, that, and that, in 2018, seemed, in, seemed, seemed completely overblown. But now it's increasingly seems you can understand the logic behind it. But I think we have to see this in the context of, you know, it seemed overblown it seemed overblown to a lot of people, but I think you have to understand this in the context of, well, the Russian invasion of, 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 of Ukraine in, in 2014. Um, and, and also, you know, during, during the 2010s, we've had Russian um, planes, according to NATO, simulating nuclear, nuclear attacks over Swedish territory. Um, the, you know, quite, quite, quite good sources saying that, you know, Russia has a, a plan in a bottom drawer somewhere for invading Gotland and using that to um, using that to support the invasion of the Baltic. So, you know, there, there, there is there is a reason for this. And I think, you know, people also in Sweden have this long um, folk memory somewhere of, um, of, of, of of the Cold War period. And I know that, you know, it was it was it was, it was sort of weirdly comical. But on my on my local Facebook group, they're, they're, they're already talking about um, the procedures for um, using the um, use, using the, the air raid shelters, the, um, the, the the bunkers that we've that, that are built all over um, Swedish cities. Um, and there was a, there was there was dispute between um, a dog owner and a, and a mother of an, an asthmatic child about whether dogs were allowed in the shelters. Now, Becky, um, Becky came onto Twitter for, 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 for this discussion and, um, and, and, and informed, um, informed the world that no, there are no pets allowed in Swedish, in Swedish bomb shelters. So, so Fido has to stay at home. But there's also been a lot of people saying, sorry, there's been a lot of people coming out saying, I've seen it in reported newspapers, people saying, well, I'm just going to stay in my house. I'm not, I'm not going to leave my pet alone. So I think it also shows that yeah, like it's a valued member of your family. And I think a lot of people don't really like the idea of leaving them behind. Well, you know, we've seen this in Ukraine with people, you know, going, 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 going to the border with their dogs and with their cats and, you know, not wanting to leave their, their pets at home. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's easy to sort of say, well, you know, the dog has to stay at home. And in, 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 in an emergency situation, I guess that's how it is. But um, people are going to find that very, very tough. 
I don't know. I don't know what you've been seeing amongst your friends, but in terms of preparation for the first time, really, people I know are sort of talking about whether they've got their crisis lauder, you know, their, their crisis box, and people are actually doing that side of the preparations. People yeah, are filling up, surf, filling up well. a box full of dried food and water. And, and in the Swedish media, there's been an enormous amount of discussion about that. You know, how many litres of water do you need to have in your basement? Oh, you need, well, you can't, you, most people use 140 litres a week, but realistically, you're only going to be able to store to 20, you know. And, and, and so I think, I think that, that discussion has really started to pick up. And, and, and I don't think you should underestimate how important that is for defence. I mean, as you see with the siege of cities in Ukraine, if, if everyone in your city has, has enough food to last two weeks, you'll, you you're it much it's much harder to take a city yeah and i mean we did also ask about that in our survey i think so only 27 percent had said that they had done something to prepare but then there was an extra 36 percent that said they were planning on doing so so that that's like 63 percent that's almost two-thirds of people we asked that said that they were going to do something to prepare for a potential war or crisis which is kind of surprising to me at least what about you guys? What have you done? Yeah, I've got my box. I've bought some batteries. Me too. <laughs> I have I have not got my box, box, but I intend to get my water dunk from our summer house and bring it back home to Malmo. I've still got my, uh, my crisis box from Corona that I never ate all the food out of, so I'm just going to use that. We've nearly reached the end of this week's show. Thank you to Becky Waterton, James Savage and Richard Orange for joining me for this discussion. And thank you too to everybody else we spoke to and who contributed to this episode. And thank you for listening to Sweden in Focus. We'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.